welcome to the second Presto Classical Podcast. My name is Paul Thomas and we have been delighted by the comments and suggestions we have received for the first episode and we hope you enjoy this second episode just as much. Since filing her first dispatches from the musical frontline in 2005 under the tutelage of last week's guest Rob Cowan, our guest this week, Harriet Smith, has become one of the UK's leading music critics and has also successfully ran the gauntlet of BBC Radio 3's Building a Library, in which she is required to select her favourite recording of a mainstay of the classical canon from the potentially hundreds available. Welcome to the show, Harriet. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Our show today will give Harriet a chance to revisit some of her favourite reviews over the years to see what they can reveal about the world of music criticism. Harriet will also get a chance to discuss a review by a colleague that she perhaps does not look so favourably upon. Following that, I have devised a devious challenge for Harriet. Since us humble readers never get to know quite how long reviewers and critics get to pontificate and ruminate over their judgments, I have given Harriet just 24 hours notice to review four recently released discs. Will she thrive under pressure like Jack Bauer, or will she wilt under the spotlight? Stay tuned to find (laughs) out. As a short prelude to the main events, I thought it would be lovely for everyone if Harriet could give a little introduction to herself to those who know only her words. As an introduction, here is an excerpt from one of her favourite recordings, the legendary performance of Bach's double violin concerto performed by David and Igor Oistrakh. That recording made such an impact on me. Uh, I was a mere three years old and it was one of the few LPs that my parents had um, in their dining room. I wasn't ever allowed to touch the LPs, of course, but um, my mum used to put it on and I used to dance around the room, apparently. But it was just, there's something so spirited about the, the performance and there's such a loving kind of intertwining of the lines. It, it just took my breath away, really even though I couldn't sort of possibly analyse it at that point. I just knew that it it meant a lot to me and it and still today it reduces me to tears. So after that, I did the usual things of, you know, listening to more recordings and um, learning to play the recorder very badly and then thankfully gave, up, gave that up when um, I was um, banned from playing recorders because I kept sort of sucking toffees at the same time and invariably, you know, you can't actually mix the toffee and the recorder. It really doesn't doesn't go together at all well. So that was my only foray into uh, wind instruments. Um, I was much safer on the piano, uh, which I studied quite seriously for, for quite a few years, ultimately ending up um, at university at Cambridge, which was a a wonderful experience because it gave me so many opportunities to to play um, as well as obviously studying and that was that was a great sort of all-round experience. Um, It was also there that I met Robin Holloway who certainly wasn't one of his composition students because um, I could not um, string you know even four bars of notes together and I'm in awe of anyone who can do but one of the things he did introduce me to was the concept of comparative listening we had as a set work Schubert's Winterreiser, which of course, you know, was in itself a huge pleasure um, and a 
tremendous sort of musical journey in all sorts of ways. But listening to different ways of performing it, um, going back to really, really old recordings where, you know, somebody would just sing one or two of the songs, um, singing it in German, singing it in English. This was my first real experience of, of the joy of comparative listening and how much you could learn from hearing it done by different performers and you know as they say the rest is history your first review for gramophone was a disc of russian piano trios in 2005 and the first disc you have selected for critical re-review is also a piano trio disc this time piano trios by mendelssohn formed by an all-star trio of yulia fisher daniel muller schott and jonathan gillad on pentatone particularly loved about this recording was the fact that here were three young clearly superstar musicians they were still in their 20s at this point Yulia Fisher was only about 23 when she recorded it I think um they they perform so brilliantly as an ensemble they have that kind of pizzazz and joie de vivre of kind of just youthful brilliance you know kind of which you you really need in this music particularly for the, the infamous scherzi um and it was just a sense of them egging each other on, not in a kind of overstated way, but just in the most creative way possible. Um, I think at its best, a piano trio, you can do that because it, it is intrinsically a sort of unequal battle, if you like. The piano is always going to sort of tend to dominate. Um, there's no risk of that there. And it's just, it's absolutely joyous. And uh, when I did a building a library a few years later on the, the first trio, the D minor, it's always a bit dangerous. You you go back to your favourites, as you know yourself, and you go back to sort of things that you've heard previously and think, I wonder what I'm going to make of it. Well, fortunately, I still really love this set. And um, it, it was, you know, it was right up there. So um, it's always gratifying to sort of have that sense that you spotted something and, and you and you're not now kind of eating your words, if you like. You raised an interesting point there with regards to these chamber supergroups. How easy is it to compare performances in general between established chamber groups and these supergroups? And what do you feel are the benefits or disadvantages to these different approaches of chamber music making? I think the answer to that is one of those it depends answers because um, a, a trio, as I've just kind of intimated, is is basically... It's a fairly unequal group. It's not like a, a sort of integrated group that you find in a string quartet, for example. Um, so I think I'm generalising madly now and, and I will get shot down in flames, no doubt. Uh, but I think if you've got a piano trio and you've got three star players, it can be an incredibly powerful and exciting medium. I mean, if you think about you know, the ultimate supergroup, you know, Yasha Heifetz, Gregor Piatigorsky and Arthur Rubinstein, you don't get any more high-powered than that. And yet there's nothing egotistic, well, there's there's nothing egotistical about them sort of trying to outdo each other. Um, they sort of work together and sort of the three of them are more than the sum of their parts, which is, which I just, I find extraordinary. And in fact, they are wonderful playing the Mendelssohn's. Um, I think 
sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you just have a sense that there are three people who've been put together, maybe by a record company, and there's just a sense that either the violinist is, is taking control or the or the pianist is taking control. Not so much the cellist, although I can think of notable examples who I'm not now going to name on air. Um, and it, it just, it, it overbalances the music. I think it has to be something where the the aim is is common you know and and it's sort of everyone's looking at the you know the same they've got the same as the same approach to the actual kind of work and how it should go so there isn't that sort of tension of no me no me no me which you can sometimes get having said that um string quartets you know which is one of the hardest things to 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 um get together a group of four like-minded star string players, if you like. But there are wonderful examples. The Zertmeyer Quartet, for example, um, the Tetzlaff, um, and then groups like uh, um, the Chiaroscuro Quartet with Alina Ibrahimova. These are all groups that are made up of very, very top-level players. They only come together from time to time. And yet, somehow, the results are just stunning and not superficially stunning but really really kind of world beating and I you know so it's it's one of those questions where there are examples where it does work and examples where it doesn't work it's really down to the chemistry I think between the artists and we've all known examples of where that has worked and where that hasn't worked while you clearly enjoyed that disc the next review for evaluation is a review of Nigel Kennedy's new four seasons on Sony Classical in which the eccentric violinist presents his own take on Vivaldi's evergreen concertos Yes, uh, <laughs> eccentric is the word that springs to mind here. It, this was not something I reviewed for for gramophone. I hasten to add it was it was somewhere where they actually use a star rating. So, which in itself is a is a kind of interesting and sometimes oversimplistic way of looking at things. But I just found, and I was listening to it again, sort of having having given it sort of um, a rest for a few years. I was listening to it again, and it still seems to me. One of those things that might work live, but absolutely does not work in the studio. It's just, it's as if Kennedy thinks he's being really kind of outlandish and reinventing the Four Seasons, which in itself, of course, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, but he's not coming at it in the way that somebody like Yuri Kane would, where it's just, it has got that sort of sense of being so iconoclastic that it that it bears repeated listening. This just seems pretty tired, pretty, you know, he's, you know, the, the use of, you know, kind of electronica is a bit naff and it's just, it, it's just not one of those things you want to hear too often. So, you know, it was great to come back to it, but I think it's now going safely back on the shelf for the next decade.
I think we all secretly, or perhaps not so secretly, quite enjoy reading a less than complimentary review of a performance or recording. Is it sometimes difficult to resist the temptation to be overly critical, given the surfeit of commentary around these days, all demanding our time and attention? And has this changed in the 15 years that you have been reviewing? I think I think the answer becomes different depending on whether you're reviewing live or whether you're reviewing a disc. Um, live is a is a strange one-off thing if you're in the concert hall um, and it's you're talking about something that's past and some of the most frustrating uh, concerts I've ever been to are those where you you know you're in the company of a really great artist but what they're doing is just they're either having a really off day or worse than that they're just they're putting themselves between the music and the audience and so you just get a sort of massive dose of ego uh, which as a critic I do find quite frustrating I I think in terms of coming to things on record what's really important is that it's considered so I might be listening to something one evening and thinking oh my goodness oh dear oh no oh dear oh dear you know and then I and I I'm thinking this is awful and then I think okay it might just be Harriet that you're in a really bad mood tonight so let's approach this afresh and I tend to find that actually if I don't like something I spend a long time trying to work out why and also trying to justify it I think it's really important for the artist to know you you, you can't sort of just start dissing people because you're in a bad mood you know they they've put they've put so much into any recording you need a certain distance from the artist because otherwise I think that becomes another sort of form of, of potential bias. You're really there as a critic to inform the, the reader or the listener and to ultimately say whether something is worth buying in your opinion or not. Uh, so I think, I hope I don't have a tendency to, to be negative about things, hopefully. Well, your final disc was one that was highly anticipated. Christian Zimmermann's recording of Schubert's last two piano sonatas, Deutsche 959 and 960, released in October 2017 on DG. This was one of those recordings where, on the one hand, you feel you've got the best job in the world. You're being given something so incredibly precious. This was his first recording in 20 years. But of course, the the counter side to that is that you have to be able to look at what your expectations are with an artist. You have to look at, and on the whole, I am a I I I love Christian Zimmerman's work. I think he's an extraordinary musician he's an extraordinary human being so it's it's about it's about looking at it and having an initial reaction which might be one of oh my goodness this is extraordinary this is very fresh he's doing things that nobody else could get away with and yet I'm absolutely convinced by them and that I think is that's really the mark of a of a tremendously 
great artist you find it with other people like Arkady Volodos where you just think nobody else could play something that slowly but he kind of suspends kind of reality and pre- presents a line of such beauty and such interest that you are totally beguiled um Zimmerman certainly does that and he makes every single movement even though they're all so familiar totally his own but without a sense of actually applying himself from without there's no gimmickry about it ever so he'll sort of start something off and you just think wow that's really interesting you know gosh that's quite a slow tempo or that's quite gentle there I wasn't expecting that but as you go through it you understand why he's doing that you know that's what makes it so extraordinary and then I think you have to go back to it because it isn't about my emotional reaction to a disc it's it's about putting some objectivity in there and trying to explain why it moves me other people might not be moved by it but you have to sort of look under the bonnet and be able to explain this is why this is extraordinary you know you might be expecting this to happen at this point but actually he's not doing that but the reason he's not doing that is just as compelling a story and you know that's that's kind of it's trying to get the balance of that really do you find it difficult to maintain a level of objectivity when reviewing such a recording and given that listeners may also struggle to be objective in their assessments of such a disc that has been awaited for such a long time does this mean that fundamentally writing about music is as much an art as the music itself I think writing about music is as elusive as the music itself. I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, I wouldn't kind of put myself up there and go, well, I write about music, so therefore I'm, you know, I'm the Christian Zimmerman of the of the keyboard, you know, sort of computer keyboard here. Uh, it's it, it's again, we're we're a sort of conduit between between the what we're hearing and um, and you have to have in the back of your mind other recordings you I mean usually when I'm reviewing I will I will put a list of sort of comparisons up there and obviously if if you know if you're doing something like a building a library you know there are there are squillions of them um they have to be in your head you have to have an idea of how you think the music should go and I think I mean some readers probably kind of think oh well anything Harriet likes is not going to be for me because she has particular likes likes and dislikes. But I think as long as you make that clear um, and explain why something moves you and or doesn't move you, then that's what it's about, really. It's about communicating that sort of analysis of why you like something. But it, it can never be completely objective. I mean, if it were objective, then, you know, robots would be doing this. Maybe robots are doing this. Um, but uh, it is an extraordinary luxury to be able to do this uh and a, and a very great privilege and i i you know even in the sort of middle of the road discs that come my way i just think it's all part of the whole picture and people like zimmerman playing schubert you know that's one of the high points i definitely agree with you with regards to your comment about some readers may think well if this person likes this then i'm sure i'll hate it because there have <laughs> definitely been there have definitely been reviewers in the past naming no names that i've read a disc of uh, then had a completely different opinion. So if I then read a uh, review that of something which they hated, I thought, oh well, I probably might like yeah. that. Then I'll give it. Yeah. I'll give it a whirl. And in a way, that's almost that's almost just as useful as uh, somebody whose opinion you tend to agree with. Oh, you know? I, I, in a way, it's actually more interesting. I think because it's sort of yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and and I think also disagreement 
among critics is a really you know it's an interesting thing when each year when we come to to sort of do the long list for the gramophone awards i just look at things and go well, why is that on there you know that's awful but or or you know why is that not on there i thought that was marvelous and it is it does kind of remind us that we're all human beings and that it is ultimately a, it's a subjective thing no matter how hard we might try to analyze something or just or kind of make our position clear on 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 an aspect of you know performance it's uh ultimately it's it's whether it touches you really isn't it yeah and speaking of reviews about which you disagreed the final review you've picked uh, for discussion this that you do feel quite strongly about but that you didn't get a chance to review when it was first released and that's a recording of Bach Suites by the Portuguese pianist Maria João Pires which was reviewed in the gramophone in April 1996. I'll read the words of the initial review, and then Harriet can enlighten us as to where she feels the original reviewer missed their mark with their (laughs) assessment. So I quote, Her partita nearly had me reaching for the brandy bottle. Its prelude is subjected to ceaseless surges and falls of dynamics at every moment, as if one were uneasily standing on the swaying deck of a ship. Not a single phrase is allowed tonal steadiness. Viewed purely as pianism, this is impressive playing. Crystal clear finger work, total control of tonal nuance and firm rhythmic pulse. As an interpretation of Bach, they could scarcely be more anachronistic. Yes, don't you just love that? That was uh, April 1996, and that was Lionel Salter, the great Lionel Salter, who had, I mean, he was a total polymath. He was one of the most intelligent people I'd ever met. He was absolutely terrifying. Um, And this was long before, I was just the, I was the mere reviews editor on Gramophone at this point. Uh, It's Maria Jao Pirish playing Bach. And the date's important because, of course, at that point, we were in a much sort of more combative um, kind of situation when it came to how early, quotes, early music should be played. Lionel was, among many other things, a very fine harpsichordist. So, of course, he was absolutely at the vanguard of, of the early music kind of period instrument movement. So, first of all, it shouldn't have been played on the piano. Second of all, Piresh dared to treat it with the freedom that the piano gave her, you know, there's peddling in there, there's, there is rubato, there's, you know, the sarabons are, are quite free and slow and um, to my ears, incredibly beautiful. I think what Lionel couldn't accept was that, that you could play it on the piano at all. My, my kind of take on it is that anytime you play Bach on an instrument other than harpsichord, it's a transcription in effect. So you can do, you can do whatever you like, within reason and because Parrish has that amazing sense of fantasy um, and also a very confiding quality which I think works so well with these these three suites and it's it, it's it's interesting because you know that was over 20 years ago and I was re-listening to it recently um, because it's about to be reissued in a big box of Parrish which will come out sometime in the autumn I think it it's just it remains really fresh some of those kind of 
some artists getting playing with that freedom you can get a bit tired of but but Piresh is just there's, there's such a kind of authenticity to what she's doing um so Parche Lionel I think this is an absolutely wonderful disc and I still do very good and while Harriet has had to wait 24 years to write that wrong she has had just 24 hours to review not one but four new releases as we move on to part two of the show challenge Harriet my first disc is perhaps something of a curveball, a disc of new music for an old instrument, musique, question mark, from the harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani, features music by, among others, the Japanese Toro Takemitsu and the French pioneer of music concrète and electroacoustic music, Luc Ferrari. Harriet, did this pluck your interest or was tuning into this disc something of a struggle? I absolutely loved this. Now, this is the kind of disc where I have you know, no right to be even speaking about it, so let alone writing about it. So it was great that that you sort of threw this one in my direction. Um, I think what really sums it up is Mahan Esfahani at the end of the booklet notes says, no harpsichord was harmed in the making of these recordings. Um, It is really extraordinary. I mean, he is a a phenomenal player and an extraordinary musician, I think. And I mean, you know, just when you think that his previous recording was of the Bach Toccatas, he he's so wide ranging in his interests, and in his hands, the harpsichord somehow becomes this kind of an anarchic sort of timeless instrument. Um, I think obviously that's partly down to the pieces he's chosen, uh, but it's very much down to, to his approach and the way he the way he looks at this music, and I just loved the way that it's it's kind of it's so. It's so propulsive and yet there's never any sense in any of this music, even where you've got things like, you know, tape and, you know, Sariaho's Jardin Secretu. It's for harpsichord and electronics, but there's never any sense that it's against the instrument. She she takes things such as, you know, trills and repeated chords, which you'd find in, you know, Scarlatti, Bach and, and everyone else and somehow makes them incredibly contemporary. I also love the way that the sort of human breath in that piece is it's very, very moving. Um, you might think, oh, a disc of, of harpsichord music, some of which is electronic, is is not going to move. It, it might be a very striking thing, but it's but this is this is what Mahan Esfahani does so brilliantly, I think. Um, and it's it's a beautifully put together disc. I mean, from the Takamitsu onwards, and um, the Gavin Bryars is, is another kind of highlight, sort of taking as only he can, sort of a piece of handle and um, sort of turning it into something completely demented. So yes, I much enjoyed this. I was really impressed by how many styles of modern composition are managed to be represented through a harpsichord. Uh, again, as you were saying, from the electroacoustic music of Luke Ferrari through to sort of post-minimalist Gavin Bryars, and then all the way back to the Toro Takamitsu, of course, who was very influenced by Impressionism. It's quite a remarkable achievement. Yes, it is, yeah. And also I thought in the Takamitsu, there's a kind of, there's the instance of Gamelan in the back of his head. And, and actually, in a strange kind of way, the harpsichord and Gamelan should be kind of miles from each other, but somehow they're not, partly because of the tuning systems that he's he's using and and exploiting here it's yes it's a very very vividly imagined disc not many harpsichordists could bring it off but he certainly does
That was Kaya Sariaha's Jardin Secret 2, and that's from Mahan Esfahani's new album, Music, available on Hyperion. Sadly, as with so many composers in the 18th century, we must now abandon the harpsichord and embrace the piano. Jean-Eflam Bavouzet's Beethoven Connections explores the musical landscape surrounding Beethoven's piano sonatas, with performances by his contemporaries Muzio Clementi, Hummel, Jan Ladislav Dusek and Josef Werfel. Yes, this is this is a really fascinating disc, and it's one of those things where if it didn't have the word Beethoven on the front, I think a lot of people might not really notice it. These are composers uh, of the of the second rank, largely, which means that you need really first rate advocacy, I think, to bring them alive. And what Bavuzay always does. Uh, when he's programming discs is he he's very good at putting things into context he's you know he's not ever going to produce a sort of complete clement clementi sonatas um even though i'm sure he'd play it wonderfully and this is really interesting because it it gives you the sort of the the context for beethoven's sonatas but it's also it's very much about a sort of interaction between beethoven in vienna and other composers so uh, velfel for example uh, knew beethoven he'd studied with kind of michael haydn and 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 also um mozart's father and he dedicated a set of sonatas to Beethoven. So this is, there are all these interactions that, that sort of really put Beethoven in context. And also, it's not just about, you know, them being on one level and Beethoven on another. It's the interaction between them. And one of the things that I loved about this was the fact that the last track is dedicated to Bavuzet exploring ways in which the others... The you know kind of Hummel for example Hummel in particular influenced Beethoven and if you played the sort of you know if you play this finale that he's that he's kind of played complete if you play this more slowly it becomes something else if you or you or kind of it so it's kind of it's it's a very kind of intellectually stimulating disc um but of course it's Barrizo at the keyboard so it's it's um it's a, a stonker in 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 all terms um so I really enjoyed this very much. And do you have a particular excerpt that you'd like to play from this disc? Yes, I do, in fact, although it was really hard to choose because there were so many fascinating aspects um, it, to be found within the pieces. But I thought we'd start with Josef Werfel's um, Sonata Opus 33, Number 3 in E major. Um, and we're going to pick it up partway through the first movement, which just shows what he can do with basic materials such as martial fanfares, but also the way he sort of pulls it in unexpected directions. often get tempted into thinking there's this sort of great man uh, view of history you know where there's sort of there's these individual figures of outstanding genius of course none of these people lived in a vacuum they all worked and talked and discussed things with all their contemporaries um, so it's been a fascinating disc and I truly enjoyed it and it does manage to illuminate and elevate Beethoven's music at the same time and it's certainly for me been a highlight of Beethoven's anniversary year if this makes you yearn for the man himself from Babuzet he has already recorded the 32 piano sonatas and his traversal of the five piano concertos is scheduled for release later this year all on Chandos 
While the previous two discs presented unfamiliar music, next up is an altogether different challenge. Harriet, in the short time available, were you able to compare Friedrich Gulder's performances of four Mozart piano concertos with the Wiener Firmonica and Claudio Bardo to the hundreds available recordings of these masterpieces? Yes, I've been up all night, Paul, so I'm exhausted. Uh, no, and in fact, I don't think you really need to compare Gulder with anyone because he's sort of a, he's a law unto himself. I learnt to love him um, when I got to know his Bach 48 properly. Prior to that, I thought he was a bit of a, an oddball character. Um, but I love his Mozart as well. And on occasion, I think when he's working with the right, the right conductor, he can be absolutely illuminating and his kind of his his love of jazz and his kind of experience as a jazz pianist can result in the most extraordinarily kind of fluid kind of lines and and sort of interplay with the, with the orchestra um unfortunately on this uh, new dg set which has got four concertos for the great concertos that's not really the case and i think it's a pity because um, he's in the company of Claudio Abbado, who proves what a great conductor he is and how he can meld his his style to any any soloist. Um, the Vienna Philharmonic. This is we're going to hear them in the in the opening of the slow movement of the C major concerto K five oh three, and the Vienna Philharmonic produce the most beautiful sound, the most burnished strings, wonderful woodwind, but it's so slow, you're almost unconscious by the time the pianist arrives. It is a just, it's a very grandiose performance, but sort of bad grandiose as opposed to wonderful grandiose. So I think this is a bit of a mishit, but but still it's it's fascinating to hear what these, you know, remarkable musicians do. It's just that it feels stylistically pretty stodgy. there's an element that Mozart is so famous for his melodious gifts that having a pianist which is perhaps more interested in the rhythmic side of Mozart's music is perhaps a combination that doesn't quite gel. It doesn't seem to here although he has made wonderful recordings of Mozart concertos so I think this was just you know perhaps the wrong lineup and the wrong day but um but it's it's still it's still fascinating and that is the that's the endlessly engaging thing about this experience you always take something um, from such great music and such great musicians even though on this case on this occasion they are a little off shall we say well finally to bring us back to the beginning of the show a disc of romantic piano trios featuring the first Mendelssohn trio featured at the start of the show but this time coupled with trios by Clara and Robert Schumann performed by the London Bridge Trio and released on Somme
Harry, how does this performance compare to the all-star trio we discussed earlier? And what's the benefit of placing these composers in the context of their contemporaries, as this disc does? Well, this is a fascinating project from Som. Um, this is volume two of the Leipzig Circle. So it's it's putting, again, it's a, a bit like Bavuze was doing with his, you know, sonatas. This is putting the, the great you know, well-known trios in context. So it's just not on the same level as the as the initial disc that we listened to with, with Fischer et al. It's not sort of elfin. It's not kind of super fine. Um, having said that, there's some lovely playing in, in the sort of some of the slower movements. Um, they're a very established trio, so they work very well together. But the problem is that there are so many comparisons out there that it doesn't it doesn't quite um, gel as as the best do, um, but it, what is interesting is the pairing because they've they've put Schumann's um, second piano trio, still a work that isn't known as 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 well known as it should be. I mean, I I I love Schumann's piano trios. I think they are absolutely extraordinary, and in the right hands they come alive and with such kind of abundant sort of joy. Um, this is pretty good. Um, and in the middle, they've put um, Clara Schumann's piano trio in G minor, which um, seems to be the, the sort of the thing one has to do these days of let's put a female composer in a disc. This is this has more point to it than some. Um, but I still think that Clara is a far less interesting figure than the other two. Um, of course, you know, she she didn't develop her compositional skills as she would have done had she focused on that, she was one of the world's greatest pianists. But now it seems that there's a kind of there's a there's a kind of tendency to say, no, we've got to sort of see her as, as Robert's equal. She wasn't. Um but it's it's perfectly nice and they play it well. They really do. They give it their best shot. So a bit of a mixed bag this one, but still really interesting to hear these three pieces together. Well, thank you very much. And we have just minutes left on the clock until your 24 hours have elapsed. But I can confirm, Harriet, that you have successfully managed to complete my challenge. A hearty and well-deserved congratulations. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) I hope as well as having a little fun, we have managed to shed a light on the world of musical criticism and demonstrated the full extent of Harriet's knowledge and skill. So I have nothing left to do but to thank Harriet for her time and expertise and also to thank my colleague David Smith for his assistance and, of course, my producer, Matt Groom. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul.